Hi, and welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Benning, Associate Editor of CIO. It's a little over a year now since Nine was rocked by a massive ransomware attack, pushing its head of IT and the company's first true head of cyber, as well, of course, as their teams onto a true war footing. I think we can all agree it delivered a jolt to many Australians, seeing such an established and recognised brand fall victim to something like this. As we know, the attack led to some broadcasts and other operations being seriously disrupted as well as an almost 3% dip in the share price as news got to market. In this episode, we're talking to the two most senior tech executives who led Nine's response to the incident, what they went through, what measures were put in place immediately, and how to shape their subsequent actions and strategies around cybersecurity at the media giant. Uh, joining me now from Nine is Damien Cronin, Chief Information and Technology Officer, and of course, a veteran in the media space, having held several senior technology roles, including with streaming service Stan, as well as at Fairfax and 9MSN prior to the 2018 merger. Damien, welcome back to the CIO Show. Thanks, David. Good to be back. Awesome. And Celeste Lowe, Nine's Group Director of IT Security, formerly Cyber Business Partner at Aquantis, and prior to that, Director of the Cyber Intelligence Centre with Deloitte Australia's Risk Advisory. Celeste, welcome to the CIO Show. Good to be here. Thanks, David. Now, guys, uh, perhaps, Damien, I'll start with you. If you could talk, talk me through... The, the harrowing events as they unfolded in, in late uh, March last year. Very dramatic, David. Um, <laughs> That's what we do here. <laughs> and, and, they were, and they were a little bit at the time. And, and look, um, for the audience, I'm, I'm sure that those that have followed media in general, there was a major cyber attack on Nine uh, in late March last year. Uh, we, we just passed the anniversary now. Uh, that saw a significant degradation of, of Nine's corporate landscape and, and uh, our publishing and broadcast landscape as well in parts, uh, courtesy of a threat actor that um, had gained entry into our environment. Uh, and that uh, was a significant multi-month exercise in terms of us both containing and then staging recovery uh, overall. Uh, and like all events like this, it was it was somewhat unexpected, but um, uh, I, I think quite proud of how the team and uh, Nine as a business responded in, in terms of the events of the day. Yeah. Late March, I, early in the morning, 2 a.m., uh, having relocated my house that day into a new premise. <laughs> and was this, was, this a, was this a Sunday, wasn't it? It was a Sunday, yes. Yeah. Sunday, yeah. 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 Sunday, Sunday, yes. of, yes. of, of, of all days, yeah, yeah. Of all days. So, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, and two in the morning as well. So when yes. everyone's at their best, uh, yeah, just yeah. Getting, a phone, getting a phone call uh, from one of our senior security engineers who, who basically advised me that um, it, there was every indication from what we were seeing at the moment that there was a major ransomware attack on yep. foot within yep. the nine business. Yep. We didn't yet have a good handle on the extent and scale of it, but it was significant from everything we could see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, uh, obviously, the mind immediately ticks through, okay, well, what do we need to do next? So we we set up a bridge uh, and put a team together and started waking people up, basically, yeah. um, and doing what we can, like in any incident response like that, to contain and isolate uh, an adversary that we do not, we did not know a lot about the time, but what we could see was that the the attack, as I mentioned, was widespread. So we started to trying to isolate parts of the network and segment and and uh, effectively 
self-contained the nine business mm-hmm. uh, and that extended from us you know severing connections between our broadcast environments and, and their interstate um, uh, offices uh, yeah. separating corporate networks from publishing networks yeah. uh, and the like and and that was purely uh, an attempt at remediation and containment because we didn't yet know how far and how widespread the the threat adversary, um, or the particular ransomware attack had spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I certainly placed some phone calls with our CEO to make sure he was well aware. We agreed to uh, move and, and collect the team physically in one place because obviously um, as much as you can do things remotely, it, it's better if we're dealing with each other face-to-face. So we agreed to work out of the office. And uh, obviously in the process as well, I rang Celeste um, and to make sure we were staging the right cyber response overall and Celeste triggered the very significant incident response process that we have uh, for our cyber incidents. So that really, and probably the way for the audience to think about it is it's tackled it in two parts over the coming days and weeks. And and, uh, one stream was very much focused on a business continuity approach. So what what are essential and certainly something as existential as not having running a running IT environment is quite existential. So your mind moves to what is absolutely critical about uh, restoration of services as a business. And then you go, can we pay people? Can we collect revenue? Can we get newspapers out? Can we stay on air? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second part is, you know, have, you know, what level of confidence do we have over at the threat adversary we're dealing with? And are, you know, have we contained and isolated them um, outside of the environment. Now, you, you somewhat have to assume the worst. We did not yet know with satisfaction that we, the adversary was no longer in the environment. Mm. Um, and so Celeste led the stream to do a lot of the containment, sorry, a lot of the containment and isolation and the forensic work to satisfy ourselves that we, the threat actor was not within the environment. And there was a second stream um, very much focused on business continuity and recovery. Yeah. This was this was the Medusa uh, ransomware, wasn't it? And it was, and it's 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 alarming that this is even a thing, ransomware as a service. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. It's a commodity these days, and and I suppose when uh, the threat actors are looking at the way that they they want to infiltrate any organization what's the quickest and easiest way and, and you know financial gain these ones are easy to pluck off the shelf yeah. um, and adapt to to whatever they want to um point it at so yeah unfortunately we're not a unique case you know plenty of uh examples out there where medusa or any any of them like it are um absolutely up for market right now it is interesting david that you know the same legal commercial models you can find such as software as a service also exist in the criminal world yeah well yeah we want we wonder whether it's a, a successful ransomware as a service company what sort of testimonials it has from its client what sort of marketing it does i did some digging around on the dark web years ago for, for some some stories it's, it's quite interesting how um how seemingly legitimate a lot of these criminal entities are they've got websites and testimonials they've got support contacts and chatbots and all of that kind of stuff. Now, had either of you ever experienced anything like this? Not to this scale. Yeah. We've had our fair share of, you know, both here and elsewhere, security incidents in our background and Celeste being a security professional. Yeah. Um, sure. Has a more extensive set. 
Yeah, just not as visible. Yes. Probably mm. I think that's the uniqueness of working for a media organisation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when you have such a career, how much more visible and, and how I suppose it changes your playbooks and how you run an incident um, and managing information flow, which is always so critical um, mm. externally and internally. It is, it is because of the, the position that Nine holds in Australian media landscape. It, it is a very public, media loves writing about media. So so this this particular incident was a very public um, example of that. And and. That was a factor in just how we we dealt with it as well. But look, we did well to keep the broadcasts, keep broadcasting, and and keep producing newspapers and stay on air and radio and 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 ultimately as a media business, that's called business. Um, and that was a big focus for us to make sure that we got through the first few days and and uh, ensured we were able to meet those essential needs. And so you you both talked about having sort of corralled, you know, your key sort of team members, I mean, how many were involved in that kind of posse of, of, of techies um, enlisted to, to deal with the response? At its core, we had a war room of about, I would say, 10 to 15 people. War room, that's the term I wanted, nice. Yeah. 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 You, you, call me, you call me dramatic, war room, I love it. And they're still called that to this day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that is where we had a collection of uh, a good cross-section of engineers and management that were driving the response to this um, and we had regular check-ins both early in the morning and throughout the day. And in the early days there, it's amazing your people and, and certainly, you know, testimonial to the team, they all lifted. There was no expectations of people rolling out the door at five. We had people working around the clock yeah. uh, in many cases, um, multiple days, um, and in some cases, sleeping on site to to make sure that that we were able to make ends meet, and uh, and a lot of it was extremely collaborative because there is an absence of information um, early on, um, and there's a lot of decisions that need to be taken. There's a lot of collaboration around how and where we go next in terms of either our understanding about the environment or how we're going to stage the recovery, and how can we do that safely. And how can we ensure that we don't trip over each other and we know we're not painting ourselves into a corner with certain technology strategies we're putting in place. So particularly key was that face-to-face communication and bringing the right people into the room for the right conversations. Um, But there was, you know, no trouble getting into people's diaries, let's put it that way, in terms of this being the the sole number one focus for us as a team. Um, And and it was quite key uh, in in terms of that war room being the, the ground zero in terms of how we staged our response. Yeah, and and suffice to say, I'm, I'm sure there was enormous anxiety at the board level. Um, how did you sort of keep them abreast of, of developments and how did that interaction kind of work? Yeah, look, the, the, the chairman and management, the executive management were briefed. Um, so the chairman obviously, um, uh, you know, as is want in a public company or any company for that matter, um, has has their governance responsibilities and, and we took considerable effort early in the early days to make sure that that um, the board were up to date and our CEO, Mike Sneesby, uh, was, was key to that as well and making sure that flow of information was clear and, and concise and up to date in terms of where the board board's understanding of the matter was. We also did briefings across the business. I mean, we've got a very diverse business uh, between our publishing arm, with the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, the Fin, uh, radio, uh, and the broadcast elements that are spread throughout the country, there are, uh, and we also happen to have a business with a lot of journalists in it. Um, so there's there's a, a massive 
massive requirement around the flow of information, the accuracy of that information and the level of precision around what we do know and don't know that informs how the business can operate. And so, yeah, that, that was absolutely fundamental to, um, to an effective management of the incident. And, and Celeste, a bit, some, some, something of a baptism of fire for you because you hadn't really been in the role for that long. No, it was, uh, it was very early on in my tenure. I think I've mm. only been here now around 18 months, so it was only uh, a few months into it. It was a great way to actually get around and meet some of the business that I hadn't met already, <laughs> or now uh, working hard to build some of those trust relationships that are critical, I think, yeah. for any size in an organisation to understand how the business operates, but uh, who are the key stakeholders. So it was a baptism of fire, absolutely. But actually, I think also in a way it was probably good. It was a new relationship. Uh, There was an enormous amount of trust, I think, with all of the stakeholders and the business that they placed back on technology and Damien and myself and the rest of the team to to get on and do what we needed to do. Um, I don't think there was any second you know, guessing that whether they were the right decisions or, or wrong decisions. And, and when you evaluate that post-incident, you know, what were the things that you did and, you know, what could you do differently next time? Uh, there probably isn't too much in response that we wouldn't um, do any differently again. So, yeah, get, getting around to meet the business in that way, it was it was a bit of a shock. And, and this wasn't necessarily a new topic, David, yeah. in the sense that we had been discussing with both the executive and and via them the board around, you know, nine like any large corporate uh, has its its uh, desire to improve and respond to a, an ever changing security landscape, and, and we were not immune to that. So, in some ways, the discourse around bringing Celeste into this and our our desire to improve our overall security posture certainly helped build a level of trust that preceded the incident um, and I think that that certainly paid dividends throughout the incident in terms of the level of trust that Celeste is describing there. Now would it be fair to say that the incident triggered a, a fairly major rethink if not re-engineering of your entire cybersecurity posture and, and can you talk me through a little bit of detail about how that has progressed? Sure. Or, um, or, or did it not? <laughs> I'm assuming it did. No, in a, in a what I would say is that the direction was set in so far as Celeste and and myself had a mandate to improve the overall security posture of the nine group, like any large business that's undergone a merger and has evolved over many years. You know, there's there was a collection of things that were uh, less than ideal in terms of how the business was operating from a security standpoint and. Being relatively new in the chair myself, uh, and certainly this being a, a renewed uh, and a significant focus of uh, the board and the executive, there was uh, a big a big effort to ensure that we understood our both our threat landscape and the strategy that we were putting in place to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And that all preceded uh, the period leading up to the incident. Um, in many respects, we hadn't yet, you know, been able to get. Uh, a lot of the actual tangible uplift up and running on the ground, but the scaffold and the framework was in place and the strategy was in place. So when the incident occurred, um, by all means, the focus was on tactically ensuring that we could continue to operate and function. But once the dust had settled on that, the conversation quickly shifted to how can we accelerate through this? We understand the plan and we've experienced the consequence. Uh, what, What else do we need to do to ensure that we can either accelerate or expedite many of the security challenges. So, you know, 
perversely, that is actually a good position to be in because you've, you've as a business, been through an exercise where everyone tangibly and uh, understands the consequence of not paying enough investment to the security landscape because mm-hmm. everyone's lived through it. Um, so there's been universal support over the past uh, year as we've made significant inroads into the security landscape here um, as a result of, as a, as a let's say, positive side effect of um, an otherwise relatively, you know, terrible event in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the opportunity, yeah, and realise opportunity to accelerate that much, much faster. Yeah. And, look, I mean, without... without- prying too deeply although it is kind of my job what what kind of <laughs> what kind of details can you share about specifically you know new measures that you put in place new um uh, we don't need to talk about vendors but different types of cybersecurity. and also did you did you need to bring in third parties or did you manage all of this in-house so in regards to incident response, we did rely on a couple of key uh, third parties to, to help us through that. Um, they were on the ground assisting us uh, within a matter of hours on that cyber Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those partners still continue to, to um, help us uh, deliver on that capability and uplift. I think foundationally, some of the things that we uh, focus on now is, 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 as you'd expect, with two major brands coming together, a simplification of the landscape. The more that you that you have, the, the harder it is to, to manage uh, and maintain insecure. So we are focusing on uh, strategically of simplification of that. Mm-hmm. Um, observability throughout the environment. Um, we've uh, gone quite hard over understanding our landscape, uh, the assets within it and, and um, the levels of controls that we need on them. We certainly understand the prioritisation of how our business operates. Um, that is also an opportunity that came out of the incident. Um, what was business critical to us versus what is cyber critical? Uh, we've gone, I suppose, prioritisation of, of managing some of the um, security controls specifically, um, and, and obviously looking at our assets on the edge um, and what do we actually have public facing and making sure that they're protected as well as they can be. So we've taken a very risk-based um, view of that and, and really understanding our landscape. Um, and we, we did a lot of work up front, David, as well, just strategically looking at the threat landscape Nine's operating within. I mean, there are some unique aspects to the media industry that make us a particular focus uh, of certain interest groups out there and uh, as well as the the standard run-of-the-mill uh, criminal threat actors. So um, it, it's a complex threat landscape for us and, and that's also informed, you know, our, our focus and our strategy around how we respond to it. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. Interesting, so as you touched on, on, on SASE, I'm assuming that's what you're referring to, talking about, you know, examining and thinking more deeply about um, you know, nine at the edge. Could you talk about that a little bit more? It's a fairly, obviously, that's a very current um, concern for all, you know, cybersecurity experts at the moment. Yeah, I think that comes in a, in a whole lot of varieties and it means something different to every organisation when you talk about a SASE or a zero trust type model. Mm. Um, and, and I don't think there's a one size fits 
all for every organisation, and I don't think there's um, I don't think there's a product out there. I, I think there, you've got a lot of vendors that uh, like to tell you that their their product is is a sassy or it's a zero trust. Yeah, I think for every organisation, as we've done here at Nine, you have to evaluate those components and go what what fits and what looks right. It's certainly um, part of every conversation that we have, and we have gone down that path in a number of different areas, whether it comes from a networking or an identity uh, in the identity space. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I think it's certainly one of the buzzwords around at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I certainly encourage all organisations to look at it, what, what fits, what type of organisation that they are. It's, it's not to be taken or done lightly. It uh, does require a, a lot of investment, and I think it takes a lot of effort and yeah. sustainability, and that's also not often factored in to, to how much it takes to maintain and run some of that. It's certainly not set and forget. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So you can't really have sassy or zero trust, you know, one size fits all. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, particularly for, you know, a big complicated organisation like, like Nine. Um I remember at the time there was some, you know, salacious rumours perhaps that that um, that maybe the attackers might have been Russian state-sponsored and motivated by Nine's, um, you know, reporting on Russia and Putin. And now, of course, you know that that kind of that kind of rumour seems all the more interesting now, particularly for journalists. Do you get the feeling that that media organisations are are perhaps you know a, a greater target? For, for hackers than perhaps they were maybe two or three years ago? Uh, look, I'm not uh, putting aside the actual incident itself in this particular case, David, and talking more generally. I Look, yes, I think, I think there are a wider variety of actors that are interested in media corporations because of the influence the media corporations have on mm. society in general. Mm. And as a result, there is interest from intelligence services and and other actors that are interested in influencing, uh, you know, that broader population or even, you know, understanding who we're talking to and the manner in which, you know, the flow of information through, uh, through the environment operates. So, uh, yeah, that does complicate the landscape and uh, I think it's reasonable and, and certainly evidence demonstrates overseas and in other media, media companies uh, receiving the attention of, you know, state actors and 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 similar. I also, oh. also think it comes down to, I think media organisations have changed how they operate in the last few years. They're, they're a lot more visible. The journalists are up on social media. They've got different paths for content delivery um, that make them a, a much more, uh, you know, uh, valid way um, to, for, for, for threat actors to, to get their message out or all by stealth. So I just think they're, um, mm. it, it, it's talked about more now than it used to be. And I think the extent of the platform delivery, we're not just OT organisations anymore with broadcast kit, you know, it's all IP mm. connected. Uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a little bit more visible. And I think organisations like ours are a little, you know, um, more visible in sharing some of that information now. So yeah. not yeah. so much under the radar. Yeah, and Damien, something you and I have talked about before that I found particularly interesting as a journalist is um, how how you and your team, and I'm assuming probably you as well, Celeste, um, are more involved in you know facilitating, um, for instance, you know journalists communicating with uh, sensitive sources. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, look, you know, in the same ways in the physical world that you know the. Uh, the, the days of meeting people in in dark underground car parks. I mean, 
you know, if that's the practices of 30, 40 years ago, I mean, the, the same the same pattern needs to hold true uh, in the digital world. How can we safely make contact with sources and ensure that they're protected, we're protected, and the nature of the flow of information there is 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 done in a way that uh, that you know all eyes um, well done in a way that is secure and and so there's a lot of education uh, amongst journalists and some are more tech savvy than others but but they're through some fairly simple practices and and, uh, and defensive techniques they can make sure that they uh, they they keep their contact management secure so mm. we we help them with that we also. Uh, courtesy of our security tooling and, and capable team are able to um, pick up when they are receiving, let's say, undue attention uh, and help with intervening on that front as well. And we also do quite a bit of travel, David. And, and uh, you know, we've got journalists and foreign bureaus overseas and, and not all of those countries are welcoming to journalism and uh, the, the mm-hmm. nature of, uh, of the profession. So... Um, that makes for an additional dimension, which is probably unique to the media landscape, um, obviously, which is uh, protecting our our sources and uh, an and otherwise pretty mobile workforce that, that needs to manage the flow of information. Yeah. And, and would you say would you generally that, that you've, you've both you know, increased training to, to improve awareness of cybersecurity issues amongst your respective teams? but also amongst yeah. management and, and the general staff? So a- absolutely. I think never underestimate the, the, the power of people in an organisation and they're a part of your defence layers as much mm. as your technology and your tool sets to, to educate them and, and raise that level of awareness from the most basic to them through to the more complex is absolutely essential. Certainly um, any, any organisation that's not addressing that is, is missing a whole defence layer. Um, but, yeah, and, and I think the organisation, people in general seem to have received it pretty well. Um, it's constant, and I think it needs to be a layered type of education and awareness. Obviously, people with privileged access to certain systems need different type of training to those, you know, general just working an email all day, um, you know, and, and potentially just phishing simulation. So I think you need to look at... Your, your target audience and, and what are you trying to get out of it and what are you trying to reduce for risks and, and uh, education is, is very important. So you do, you're doing fishing training. What, what other sorts of training oh, are you doing? All sorts. We do face-to-face training. We do uh, one-to-many. We do online uh, lunch and learn trainings, uh, which are opt-in versus, you know, must attend. It's mandatory. I, I think as per any organisation, it's quite varied. Yeah, yeah. Something else I wanted to bring up, and Damon, you and I have touched on this um, not that long ago, but where where does the media industry in Australia fit into the, you know, these sort of um, fairly fairly well covered uh, amendments to the to the critical infrastructure bill? It's called the critical infrastructure bill, which is an amendment of a of a previous bill. Yeah, I, David, we we're aware of that. I, I don't think we've taken a view yet. Um, yeah. So, and it's probably one more for uh, uh, our, our chief counsel to, to weigh in on because um, yeah. I don't profess to be an expert on that one. Right. So, so it seems as though perhaps there might be a degree of self-determination with, with respect to that, yeah? Yeah, that's my understanding um, is there's a there's a set of criteria that we need to self-assess against and we, we haven't yet formulated a view on whether we, uh, we fall within that bracket. Yeah, is that fair, yeah. Celeste? That's absolutely fair. It's a, it's a complex topic, and and um, yeah, it's under evaluation. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, th- there's been such a flurry of, of cyber attacks since COVID, and and something that I've observed, and I wonder whether whether the two of you agree. And I've also observed the same thing. Is that there seems to be a far greater um, openness um, amongst uh, companies, but senior executives or people like yourselves, to discuss in the public forum, you know, cyber breaches, things that have been, you know, what you've what you've done in order to mitigate against them, and, and sharing of, of 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 sort of information and intelligence about responding to, to, to cyber threats. Do you think that's that's true? Because that's, that's certainly been my, my impression. I, I think it's trending that way, mm. David. I, I think there are some good reasons why it's healthy to, to be more transparent about these types of threats because I think it raises general awareness, at least within the commercial sectors that are dealing with it, that these this is a real threat and that... that you know, by being public about it, by sharing some insights and some learnings, it gives other businesses and the the economy in general an appreciation that these are real risks and that they need to be properly calibrated relative to the investment that they attract. And I think in the past, it's been swept under the carpet a little bit and uh, it's been looking the other way or we'll keep this quiet. And we think, you know, being good citizens that and, and believing in transparency of information that we should be public about it, or at least comfortable to talk about it in, in the right context. And I think that can only be a good thing in general. Yeah, I think the regulatory changes over the last couple of years and certainly things uh, are driving organisations that they must be transparent as yeah. well. But I, I think the, the open forums communication with those who are impacted externally and customers that are impacted versus, you know, employees who are impacted by any sort of cyber incident. I also think some of the brands that have been impacted in the last few years um, coming to the forefront and talking about it helps and assists. And I think if you look at the volumes, uh, the the increase year upon year, I think it's 15% in the last year that have increased from from cyber attacks. Uh, Yeah, that visibility is just out there. There there is no hiding and and there shouldn't be. I I think, David, you know, it's a bit of a corporate responsibility as well. And we have, we are suppliers to others and, and, you know, we have like, like any modern corporate have connections into other, other companies and other relationships that we need to manage and doing that in a secretive way actually undermines the trust, the, the very trust that we're trying to leverage to, mm. to move ourselves forward or respond to the incident question. So we actually tried to be quite candid with our supply chain and, and our partners and, and staff as well uh, about what was on foot because we didn't think that uh, there was necessarily a strong advantage to, to trying to deny people relevant information. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you, you raised. Yeah, p- partners and, and and other you know organisations that you do business with had that has did last year's attack sort of lead to a sort of reshaping of those communication channels as well? No, not fundamentally, I, I think they were, know, they, were, they were always there. Yeah, and there was general appreciation that we were being as candid as we should be, and mm-hmm. that, that we were also displaying a right level of caution in the sense that. You know, not everything, like hindsight being 2020, we now understand more or less the full landscape of what took place courtesy of the forensic work that Celeste was driving and, and our overall understanding of the response over the course of time. Uh, I think people were aware that we didn't have all information up front and that where the trust was built and established is that we were 
just very clear about what we did know and what we didn't know. And that informed a healthy response because that level of ambiguity by acknowledging it helped our supply chain manage their own risk and manage their own circumstance and, and work out how they can help us respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that added a level of stabilization and calming effect to the overall incident response that I think was generally healthy and, and, and a credit to Nine as an organisation for managing it that way. Yeah. And do, do you both feel that the event sort of reshaped your respective relationship, your relationship to each other and the relationship between your respective teams? I imagine, I imagine it probably did. I, yeah. I mean, look, what I loved about, I mean, I'll speak personally and, and, and is that I, you know, I felt I had a team and Celeste being absolutely central in this case to this particular response that were both experts and professionals in their field and 100% committed to, to, to manage, managing the situation as best as possible. And these are particularly complicated and difficult circumstances. We're talking about a, an event that no one, you know, no one wishes to find themselves in and really does call for an above and beyond type response for not just my reports with, with Celeste, but also just the, the broader teams in general. I think everyone absolutely stepped up to the plate. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have an incredible amount of trust in, in Celeste and her team's capability as I do in in a lot of the broader team as well um, in terms of their contribution during the cyber incident. Thanks, Damien. Yeah, I I think, I mean, we were a pretty new partnership going into this. Yeah. Uh, It's certainly solidified. We we were quite open with each other. We were at from an organisation perspective. We were very well aligned in the strategy, how we were going to execute on it. So it really solidified that, and I think it fast-tracked it for us. The senior leadership team that that runs here from a technology perspective are very cohesive, um, thanks to Damien's leadership uh, style and and, and the working relationships that he had already built up. So uh, organisation-wise, going into this, we were in a really strong position to be able to respond um, uh, having been involved in, in, in a number of incidents in other organisations over a number of many years, some of what uh, fails to, to formulate is, is I suppose, um, that cohesiveness mm-hmm. uh, and getting through to the, the outcome and everybody on the same page, which Nine did extremely well, um, mm-hmm. I think, due to that leadership style that Damien has and, and, as I said, the trust that he has built in his people and vice versa. So uh, that worked incredibly well. It wasn't a time for finger pointing. Um, it wasn't a, a time to, to say what's working and what's not. Everyone rolled up their sleeves and got on with it, and, and that worked just extremely well. So, no, it, it solidified it, um, and, yeah, continue to grow on that. Now, a question I probably should have asked at the top of the program, Celeste, is are you, are you the first sort of, you know, significant senior cyber person at nine? Well, I think the, the brand has evolved so significantly. Yeah, uh, so many different components, yeah. So, I mean, the, the organisation literally doubled overnight, um, what, two and, a half, two, two and a half years ago. So I think there were components of that security uh, role there previously, but I suppose not at the, the group or the enterprise level, yeah. which is where I stepped into. So, yeah, I suppose it, it was a, it's a significant step up in capability or, or, or structure and how that was going to go forward, So, which, which uh, allowed me to formulate Formulate, um, formulate that a little bit quicker. Yeah, so, so create, creating the role that you ultimately filled would, um, would have seemed quite, quite prescient, really, in March last year. Yes, it, it, it certainly needed no subsequent justification, David. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's genuine widespread understanding now of cyber within the group. And I know 
there'll be a lot of CIOs and CTOs that listen to this and, and potentially CISOs that, you know, it, it struggle uh, not without, you know, good effort to, to maybe build the case and, and get the awareness within broader executive groups elsewhere. But in, in you know, we have the luxury somewhat courtesy of the side effect of the incident to, to have good buy-in, good collaboration, good awareness around the investment and the types of, uh, you know, risk management and capability that, that uh, Celeste and her team bring in through the cyber function. Sure. And, and how are you feeling about the, you know, the, the cyber posture that you've adopted now looking forward, you know, 12, 18 months, three, five years out? I mean, it's, of course, very difficult to predict, but I'm just wondering what you know, what your comments are on that, and, and 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 perhaps also what you might predict yourselves, what you might what you sort of envisaging seeing down the track in terms of cyber um, attacks and the need the need for greater vigilance. I think it's a journey for every organisation, and it will continue to be for for us as it is for other orgs. Um, mm. We're in an incredibly strong position um, now, uh, and as we keep evolving, the threat, um, the external threat environment and the landscape changes and we have to change with it which I think we adapt quite quickly to um, the, the strategy is evolving and will continue to evolve there are new products that we need to develop and we do that you know in, in, in quite a, a shift left type um, viewpoint um, let, let's create it securely and let's get things out there with a good way to maintain um, nobody wants to be in a position of um, you know, trying to maintain things that should have should have been done differently to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I think we're in an incredibly strong position to keep that that moving forward now. David, you're never quite comfortable, right? I, I don't think, you know, if you're complacent, that in itself is an issue. So I, I think, you know, Celeste and I are constantly discussing, you know, where do we need to focus next? Uh, what types of controls and capability do we need to to explore to improve our position? But we are we are worlds apart from where we were um, some time ago, and I, I think that that stands testament to the just the solid uh, solid partnering that's gone on with the business and and the capability that um, Celeste and the the technology team have brought into the org. Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, look, thanks so much for, for coming on the CIO show and talking about something and, and talking so candidly about something which is you know clearly very. Very, very sensitive, really appreciate it and look forward to having you back on the CIO show again very soon. No worries. Thank you for having us, David. Thanks. Great to talk. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Now, it's been almost two years since the CIO show's debut episode looking at the state of AI in Australia. That two-part series revealed serious shortcomings in understanding, confidence and therefore overall penetration of AI across enterprises when comparing Australia to other developed countries. Of course, we also talked about the exciting potential for the technology, yet as our guest revealed, many organisations still view AI as something otherworldly, even magical, which was holding back the development of critical early stage iterative projects deemed necessary to develop genuine competency. Meanwhile, the shortage of trained data scientists was creating further drag. In our next episode, we'll be speaking with CIOs working deep at the coalface with AI about how the technology is progressing amongst Australian enterprises and discuss the next steps needed to properly establish the technology as a true engine for digital advancement and economic growth. We hope you could join us.